0: Well, good morning, everybody, and a special welcome if you're joining us for the first time. We are in the middle of a series called The Story of Us. We're taking the eight weeks before Easter, to ask the question, what are the most important things that we should understand in the New Testament of the Bible? And, and so what I did is I spent some time last summer asking the question, like, if I could only tell you eight things, what would they be? So the disclaimer was, of course, these are the most important things according to me. So you may have some different ones, but uh, kind of a fun thing to do. And then um, we also have a whole bunch of us reading the New Testament for ourselves, many for the first time. And so uh, if that's you, congratulations. We are halfway. So give yourselves a round of applause. I'm the only one clapping. That's awkward. Okay, yeah. And here's the other thing I know that happens. Some of you have already bailed because you're like, I'm too far behind. I'll never catch up. If that's you, hear me. Tomorrow begins week five, and one of the rules we started with was every week is a new week, and I would argue it is better to read half than to read none. So please jump in tomorrow with us. Keep reading. If you're here for the first time and you're like, what is this you're talking about? Out at the welcome table, we have a few copies of the New Testament left along with those bookmarks, and we would love you to jump in with us as we continue our conversation about the story of us. Uh, to review where we have been, uh, you did not know this, but for the last four weeks, I have talked about the things that God has done for us. Let's put up a slide real quick. Uh, we talked initially about the resurrection. We said without the resurrection of Jesus, there would be no New Testament. Uh, there were no believers at the cross, but then Jesus showed up alive again, and everything changed, and they wrote about it, and those letters became the New Testament of the Bible. Uh, the other thing that to interesting implication of the resurrection is because Jesus rose, the promise is that someday we too will rise. That's God for us, part one. Uh, the second thing we talked about was the incarnation. That's the Bible nerd way of saying God came among us in the person of Jesus Christ, and he came among us to show us what God is like. And we said that you're never going to get closer to understanding the heart of God than by watching Jesus. That was week two. Then in week three, we talked about the blood of Jesus and how only the blood of Jesus has the power to wash away our sins and to restore peace with God. Nothing but the blood. Someone should write a song about that. Yeah, there you go, right? And then last week we talked about grace, and we took a look at a a section of an ancient letter written by a pastor named Paul to Christians living in Galatia, where he basically says, it is by grace that you have been restored to peace with God. Grace is a gift. It can't be earned. It's not earned by rule following. It's not earned by church attendance. It's not earned by generosity. You simply accept it. It's a gift. It's grace. And as soon as you start trying to bargain with God for your salvation, you've lost Grace And to lose grace is to lose everything. So that's where we've been for the last four weeks. God for us. This week represents a pretty significant pivot in our conversation. Instead of talking about what God has done for us, I want to chase down a question that many, many of you have had, and you may have never verbalized it. If you understand that the blood of Jesus washes you clean, you understand the invitation and, uh, of grace and what it means to accept that invitation, a question that naturally flows out of that for many, many people goes like this. If a restored relationship with God happens by grace alone, like can't do anything to earn it, you just accept it, then does how we live matter to God? As in how we live here and now. If we're not trying to earn our salvation, then does it really matter how we live right here and right now? And the short answer is yes, and that should surprise none of you that I would say that, right? Like, well, you're a pastor, that's kind of the line, right? The longer answer, though, is what I want to talk about for the next few weeks. I want to spend some time exploring, now that we've talked about what God has done for us, I want to spend some time exploring what God wants to do through us and what God wants to do in us. In us, And so that will be our conversation for the next two weeks. Today, we're going to talk about what God wants to do through us. And then next week, I want to talk about what God wants to do in us. Because a relationship with God begins by accepting his gift for you, but that's not where it ends. He has plans for you and your life right here and right now. He has a mission for your life that can change you and can change the world. Uh, So to help you see what God desires to do through you this week, it's kind of a a different sort of construction for our time together. I want to show you something that happens when you take pull way back and take a look at the Bible as a whole, as you look at what they call the narrative arc of The Bible. I want to take you on a journey that begins near the beginning of the Bible and culminates with a very strange passage of scripture that many of you've read in a book called Acts in the New Testament. A-C-T-S. That's where we find the actions of the first followers of Jesus. And so uh, in order to begin, we need to go back to the beginning. As many of you know, the Bible begins in a garden called Eden. And the first people, Adam and Eve, are placed there by their creator. And in the Garden of Eden, God and people lived together. They had a relationship based on love and trust. They shared life. The author of Genesis even gives us this description early on in the story. He writes, The man and his wife, so Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God as he was in the garden walking in the cool of the day. And the the verb walking there is a Jewish idiom for living. So the picture here is that God lives with people. He comes down as the sun is setting and walks with them and talks with them and encourages them and is with them. And just imagine with me for a moment what that would be like. In the beginning, there was peace. In the beginning, there was security. In the beginning, there was trust. Adam and Eve never had to wonder how God felt about them. If they wondered what God was like, they would simply watch him. If they wondered what God thought about something, they would simply ask him. In a sense, in the beginning, there was no separation between heaven and earth. People had access to their heavenly father. But because God loved Adam and Eve, and because of the sort of relationship he desired with them, again, a relationship built on love and trust, God had to give them a way to signal that they didn't want such a relationship. They had to have the freedom to say, no, thank you to God. And so in order to provide a way for them to do that, God planted a tree in the center of the garden, and he established a boundary. He said, you know, all of the food in the garden is free, you're free to eat, but of this one tree, you should not eat. You're able to, but it's not going to be helpful just trust me. There's better life by following me than by turning from me. That's that's the story. That's what love requires. And eventually, the day comes when Adam and Eve decide that God must be holding out on them. And they approach the tree, and they look at the tree, and they maybe smell the tree, and then they take the fruit of the tree, and they take a bite of the fruit. And in doing so, they rebel against God. They say, God, we believe we're better off without you. And in that moment, separation occurred between people and their creator. If you think of it visually, you know, you had this intimate relationship, and now there's distance. Now there's separation. In a moment, everything changed. No longer would he walk with them. No longer would he be with them. Because of love, God gave the first people what they wanted, but the consequence of that freedom was devastating and far-reaching. The text actually gives us a picture of what the separation looked like in physical terms. Uh, Genesis three twenty-three. It says, "So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken." Adam and Eve are sent east of Eden. There's a, an image I found on the internet that sort of captures this moment. Uh, carving, and you just kind of see this angel sort of pointing Adam and Eve away from the garden, away from the presence of God, because there was broken relationship. And for the first time in history, there was distance. There was distance, there was brokenness between people and God. No longer could they trust that God was with them. No longer did they have direct access to them. No longer did they know what He was like in any given moment. And not surprisingly, things on Earth spun quickly out of control. And that helps explain the world in which we find ourselves today. Anyone who watches the news cycle, you have this sense like, God, if you're there and if you care, then why? How did this ever happen? And the Bible tells us how it happened. It happened when people chose to try to find life apart from God's design. But fortunately, um, that is not the end of the story, not by a long shot. Because from this moment in the biblical account moving forward, the Bible tells the story of God coming back back. His goal was to restore relationship with the people he created. Once again, a relationship of love and a relationship of trust. And so God begins to move closer. And if you, if you read Genesis for yourselves, what you're going to find is just a couple of pages into the story, God begins to make contact again. Uh, he speaks to a man named Noah a few times. And so for a few moments, Noah had a sense that God was with him and that God knew him. He knew God's will for his life. And then then God comes to a man named Abraham. And and for 13 times, God makes contact with Abraham. And so 13 beautiful moments, Abraham has a sense of God's desire for him. There's still distance, but now God is making contact. And then there's the man Moses who. who shows up in a book called Exodus, the second book in the Old Testament, and, and Moses has 40 opportunities that are recorded in the text where he con- converses with God. He has clarity about what God wants for him, moments when he knows that God is with him. But, but then you work your way a little bit into Exodus, and something happens that is, that is very unprecedented and very unexpected, After rescuing the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt, God tells Moses to have the people build for him a house. No longer would he temporarily appear to people in significant moments of life, in significant people in significant moments. He's moving closer. He wants to be in relationship. Exodus 25 records the words, God said, then have them make a sanctuary for me. And I will dwell among them. So I once again, I will dwell among my people. Make this tabernacle, and the word means house, and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So God instructs the people to build him a house and promises live with them. Here's a a rendering that somebody made in Israel that you can go and buy a t-shirt and take your picture with it, but there it is, right? That's kind of the, that's the house that God desired for the people to build for him. And, And the idea was that that God's house would be at the center of the community and all of the other Israelites would camp around God's house. They would know what God wanted for them because they could look to the house. They had a sense God was with us. God also tells him to make an ark or a box um, and that his presence would dwell over the angel wings of the ark. And some of you just had a memory flash into your mind of Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Are you with me? That is the ark we're talking about, right? And so the ark goes inside the house and God's presence comes and dwells among his people. And he leads the people from the tent. The tent is the place where heaven and earth Came together. God's people would know He was with them and for them. And it was a taste of paradise, at least least for a time. But as you continue to read, what you start to see is that the Israelites begin to think of the ark as kind of a good luck charm, and they would take it into battle so that they would win. And that's generally not a good idea where God is concerned. And so, in response, God moves closer still. A thousand years before the time of Jesus, God tells Israel's greatest king, a man named David, To have his son Solomon build a permanent house for him in the city of Jerusalem. It was to have the same dimensions as the tent, but it was to be unmovable. And so Solomon launches the construction project, and eventually the day comes when he carries the ark into the house, and the presence of God once again dwells with his people. And God promises to live with them, and his presence would be obvious. The temple would be the place where heaven and earth met, the house of God. And the implications of this are really stunning if you think about it. I mean, just imagine with me a Jewish child and they're afraid because they hear that armies are circling the city and they want to destroy them and they start to say, you know, you know, Dad, how do we know God is with us? I mean, how do we how do we know he's for us? And and maybe the dad takes the, the son or daughter for a walk up to the Jerusalem hills early in the morning and they watch the sunrise and the first rays of sun hit the temple, and the temple would have been fifty feet tall, white and gold, shining in the morning sunlight. And the dead would say, we know God is with us. God's presence lives in that house. That's the place heaven and earth meet. God has made a way inside of that building for us to know where we stand with him. We know he loves us and we know he is with us. But as you continue to read, you learn that Israel continues to break relationship with God. They continue to try to find life apart from him. Even a permanent house wasn't enough. And so eventually in 586, there's a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar and God allows Nebuchadnezzar to come to the city of Jerusalem and to level the temple completely flattened. And there's an Old Testament prophet named Ezekiel who has a vision of the presence of God leaving the temple of God and going up to the Mount of Olives and looking back over the city and just being silent. And then 400 years pass. And the children of Israel faced the troubles of living life alone. There was no place where they would look to see where heaven and earth would meet. God was silenced. The people felt abandoned. They felt as if their prayers were bouncing off the ceiling. But see, God's plan to restore relationship had not failed. In fact, there was something that was coming that would blow away everyone's expectation because eventually the day came when God walked arm and arm with people Again eventually the day came when he sent his one and only son Jesus to come among us to be born as one of us and the new testament records accounts of Jesus life and Jesus birth and Jesus death and Jesus' resurrection. One of the accounts that we studied a few weeks back is from a disciple by the name of John. He would have been the youngest follower of Jesus when Jesus was on planet Earth. He lived much longer than the other disciples. And later in his life, he writes down what he remembers because he realizes he's going to die and he wants people to know. And John begins his account of Jesus' life with these words. He says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. So he says, okay, through him all things were made. So you see, this Word was like involved intimately in creation. Nothing was made that wasn't made through the word. And then down in verse 14, he lays out his thesis statement for his account of Jesus' life. He says, who is Jesus? John says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And as you see on the slide, the word for made his dwelling is a verbal form of the word tabernacled. Jesus comes as the house of God among us. And as he grows and as he begins to teach, he disrupts everyone's expectations because he goes to people that society had said were unclean and they're outsiders and he embraces them and he loves them and he shows them grace. And instead of him becoming dirty with his contact with them, he makes them clean. Moreover, he does something else that did not seem possible to the religious leaders in Jesus' day. Everywhere Jesus went, he forgave sins. And for generations, if Jewish people wanted their sins forgiven, they knew you go to the temple. That's where heaven and earth meet. So Jesus, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are going to small towns around the Sea of Galilee and forgiving sins? Only God can forgive sins. It was almost like Jesus was a portable temple in which God's spirit dwelled. He perfectly displays the heart of God to his people. Before you had to look at the temple. Now you could look at Jesus. Again, he's the place heaven and earth meet. But then Jesus is betrayed by one of his closest friends. He's arrested under false pretense. He's tried. He's convicted. And he's hung on a cross. He's crucified. And, and before sundown that Friday, his body was placed in a tomb and sealed. And his disciples scattered because they were afraid for their lives. They, they had hopes. They thought Jesus, they thought they knew who he was. They thought they, they knew what he was here to do. But they're like, apparently we were wrong. We thought he was the Messiah. We thought he was the one that God would send to restore peace ultimately between people and God. But, he, but, he, but Messiahs can't die. Sons of God can't be crucified. And so that first Sunday, that first Easter Sunday, the disciples are in a locked room in the city of Jerusalem. And they're afraid for their lives. And suddenly something unbelievable and undeniable happens that changes everything. Jesus comes and stands among them very much alive. You thought this was the end. Things are just getting started. And Jesus spends 40 days with his disciples. And he teaches them and reminds them of what he said before. And then shortly before he leaves them and ascends back to heaven, he says something to them that is so strange, at least initially. Listen to what he says. It's found in a book called Acts, which originally was a letter written by Luke, the same one who wrote the account of Jesus' life called Luke. Acts 1 verse 4, he says this. He says, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. He says, In a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I don't think they had any idea what Jesus was talking about. As a matter of fact, I think the only reason they did what Jesus said is because when someone predicts their death and resurrection and pulls it off, you just sort of go with whatever they say. Would you agree? Yeah. It's like, okay, uh, yeah, we'll wait. That sounds, that sounds good. So Jesus ascends to heaven. The disciples stay in Jerusalem to wait and to pray and to worship. And if you asked me, what's the city of Jerusalem like during this time, I would say, well, it's absolutely slammed with pilgrims, religious pilgrims from all over the world. Because shortly after Jesus ascends to heaven, there's a feast that the Jews called Shavuot, and in Greek, it's called Pentecost. And it was one of the three times a year, the three high holy days when God had instructed all of his people to gather. And many of them couldn't do it every year. So there would have been pilgrims that had saved for years to make the trip to Jerusalem to the temple for Pentecost. And the disciples, Luke tells us, are in the temple every day leading up to Pentecost. And they're there on Pentecost. And what would have happened is they would have been standing in a crowd. They would have been listening to the priest read from the Old Testament. That's what they did during these high holy days. And he would have read the story on Pentecost of the day that God came down on Mount Sinai and a voice spoke to the people from Mount Sinai. And when God came down on Mount Sinai, there was fire. And then they would have read another passage from the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel who describes the presence of God coming like a rushing wind. And I just imagine the disciples surrounded by countless others in the temple courts listening to these words when all of a sudden... We'll pick it up in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Luke tells us, When the day of Pentecost came, so the day of the festival, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound, like the blowing of a violent wind, came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And the Jewish people called the temple God's house. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them, and they would not have missed the connection, right? At Sinai, God comes, and the voice speaks, and there is fire, and it's happening again. He says, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit enabled them, to which we would respond, huh? In other words, the disciples are from the north, So they're not the best educated folks in the land. They certainly would have never studied these languages. Moreover, there are Jewish people from all over the world who come back to Jerusalem and they bring with them their native tongue, which isn't the language of Israel. It isn't Hebrew and the common language would have been Greek or Aramaic. But it's like, okay, so the disciples begin to speak as in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them, languages they'd never studied. Now, Luke says, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. So, okay, that's why. When they heard the sound, the crowd came together in bewilderment because each one of them heard them speaking in his own language. What do you think they were talking about? <laughs> the Messiah, the Christ, has come. We were with him. He's the anointed one. He's the promised one, but he's not the Messiah like we were thinking. Because we thought he was going to free us from Rome, he came to do something way bigger than Rome. He came to free us from sin. And we know this because he's back. We saw him die on a cross. We saw him placed in a tomb And I know it's unbelievable, but it's undeniable. We were with him for 40 days. He's back. And I don't know what language we're talking about right now, in right now, but this affirms the reality of what God has done. They're in the temple and there's wind again and there's fire again. And this time God comes again, but this time he doesn't just speak. This time he moves in. God changes his address once more. No longer is he simply walking arm in arm with people in the person of Jesus, but the Holy Spirit of God took up residence within the followers of Jesus. And the change in these was stunning, and it was immediate, and it was compelling, and it was captivating. If you said, What happens after the Holy Spirit comes and begins to live inside followers of Jesus? I'm so glad you asked. Shortly after, like if you just read a few verses ahead, we get this description of their community. Luke tells us all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, and just start going, well, well, no one lives like that. No one lived like that. And you're telling me these believers, like, literally, they became others-focused and not self-focused. Yep, that's, that's what the text tells us. They were so filled with the Spirit of God, it was so fresh, and it was so new, that literally, it transformed the way that they were living their lives. And notice the last verse. And the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. It was literally as if, as if the Spirit of God comes to live inside his followers and a light begins to shine. And all around them is darkness and the light begins to shine and the light begins to grow brighter and brighter and brighter. And people on the outside are drawn to the light because the Roman world had never seen anything like this before. When God moved in, everything changed for those first followers of Jesus. It's really impossible to overstate the significance of what happened at Pentecost, both for the first followers of Jesus and for any of us here today who would say, I am a Christian. I believe in Jesus. Because, well, let me show you something that an early pastor named Paul wrote to Christians living in Greece. To a culture that would have been very familiar with temples, he writes these words. He says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? I mean, and the implications of this are just just beyond imagination. It's like God has decided to make his presence known in the world through his people. Instead of a temple of stone, having people look at a temple of stone saying, that is the place where heaven and earth meet. It's like God has decided to build his temple out of living stones, flesh and blood, people in whom his spirit would dwell. Uh, God is building a temple of people who would be his presence to those in need. Friends, that's what God wants to do through you and me after we receive the gift of his grace. Ideally, people in our hurting world should be able to know that God is real by experiencing the joy, the presence, the generosity, the grace, and the love of God's people. If people on the outside want to know what God is like, they shouldn't have to look up. They should be able to look around. Because the space where heaven and earth meet is no longer a physical structure. Heaven and earth are to come together in the community of the followers of God of Jesus. And friends, this blew away the Roman world. They had never seen anything like it. Rome was built on survival of the fittest. And here was a group of people who were pursuing an other's first mindset, sacrificing for one another. And as they did, Christianity spread like wildfire because it was like resonating deep within people. This is what God intended for us in the beginning. And they were captivating. In closing, I, I want to speak to those of us who are followers of Jesus. And if you're here and you're not, I'm honored that you're with us. And you need to know that we as a community exist for people like you to come and explore. Uh, but, but if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, just I, I want to lean on you just a little bit. Uh, and I want to remind you that you are a portable temple of God in the world today. And I know that sounds a little weird. But I want to remind you that God wants to do something through you because of what he has done for you. He wants to leverage your life and my life to let people know what he is like. The gift of our salvation isn't just for us. It's for the benefit of those around us. He wants to leverage our lives at work. He wants to leverage our lives at home. He wants to leverage our lives with our extended families. He wants to leverage our lives at our church. He wants to leverage our lives in our community. He wants to leverage our lives in our world. It's like you have been invited by the God who has done so much for you to be a part of the adventure of him doing some of his work through you. Accepting the grace of God is only the beginning of what he wants to do in your life and through your life. Whether you realize it or not, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have received from God. All of which brings us to our big idea for today, and we'll close with this. Would you stand? Heavenly Father, once again this morning, we thank you for your grace that we don't deserve, that we can't earn, but that flows out of a heart of a father who is desperate to be reunited for his children. We thank you for the invitation to love and trust what you have done through your son, Jesus. And I pray um, that for a whole bunch of us, um, this image of you moving in To our lives, and and would, would just haunt us in wonderful ways this week. And we might wonder not only what that means for us, but what that means for the world. I pray that as we learn to walk with your Spirit, our lives would shine, and that people would be captivated by the way we think of others and not simply ourselves. I pray that you would leverage this community to make our city and our state and our world a little more like you want it to be. And so we thank you for trusting an imperfect people with an incredible mission. In the matchless name of your son, our savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Everyone said amen. Friends, go in peace. We'll see you next week.